Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Another movie from an old TV show. Uh, what are you going to do? Walk out. They go where no one else dares. They do what no one else can. So when there's only one chance to get it right, they're the ones to call. Who are you people? Damn, I hate to fly. But they only answer to me. My name is Charlie. Meet the most elite crime-fighting force ever assembled. They've got techniques you never dreamed of. You know, I signed that release waiver, so you can just feel free to stick things in my slot. Good morning, angels. Good morning, Charlie. Meet Roger Corwin. He's planning to steal a new software that can trace a voice signal anywhere in the world. If this got into the wrong hands, it'd be the end of privacy. That's where you come in, angels. Charlie, would that mean undercover? I'll leave that up to you, Bosley. Columbia Pictures presents Thousand Dollars, the girl catches him. A new breed of knockout. Hi, Pete, how are you? I'm good, I just... Could you hold on a second? It's just been kind of crazy this week at work. Cameron Diaz. I'm like a virgin, you know? I mean, it's my first time. Here. Drew Barrymore. I figured we could have a little breakfast. To go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Ah! A little help. Oh, yeah. Lucy Lou. At your service. And Bill Murray. I love fire. <laughs> Get some action. Charlie's Angels. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie version of Charlie's Angels from the year 2000. Now, the studio was Columbia Pictures. The release date was November 3rd of the year 2000. The running time is 98 minutes. The rating is PG-13. The budget is $93 million, and the box office take for the U.S. was $125 million, making it the 14th ranked movie in the year 2000. Rotten Tomatoes actually gave it 68% fresh from 142 reviews. The critics' consensus is, mixing tongue-in-cheek cheesecake with glossy action set pieces, Charlie's Angels is slick and reasonably fun despite its lack of originality. However, our favorite reviewer, Roger Ebert, gave it a half a star out of four stars. <laughs> And here is his review. Charlie's Angels is eye candy for the blind. It's a movie without a brain and it's three pretty little heads, which belongs to Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Liu. The movie is a dead zone in their lives and mine. What is it? A satire of what? Of satires, I guess. 
It makes fun of movies that want to make fun of movies like this. It's an all-girl series of mindless action scenes. Its basic shot consists of Natalie, Dylan, and Alex, the angels, running desperately towards the camera before a huge explosion lifts them off their feet and hurls them through the air and smashes them against windshield and things. But they survive with injuries only to their makeup. Why, I am asking, is this funny? I am thinking hard. So much money and effort was spent on these explosions that somebody must have been convinced they had a purpose. But I, try as I might, cannot see them as anything other than action without mind, purpose, humor, excitement, or entertainment. The movie's premise will be familiar to anyone who has ever watched the original TV show. I never watched the show, and the plot was familiar even to me. The disembodied voice, John Forsythe, issues command to the three babes who work for his detective agency, and they perform his missions while wearing clothes possibly found at the thrift shop across the street from Coyote Ugly. Barrymore, Diaz, and Lou represent Redhead, Blonde, and Brunette, respectively, or as my colleague David Poland has po- pointed out, <laughs> T.A. and Hair. Sad, isn't it, that three such intelligent, charming, and talented actresses could re- be reduced to their most prominent component parts, and voluntarily, too. At the tops of their careers, they chose to make this movie. Barrymore even produced it. They volunteered for what lesser talents are reduced to doing. The cast also contains Bill Murray, who likes to appear unbilled in a lot of his movies and pick the wrong one to shelve that policy. He is winsome, cherubic, and loopy, as usual, but the movie gives him nothing to push against. That's the curious feeling he's playing to himself. Sam Rockwell plays a kidnapped millionaire, Tim Curry plays a villain, and why go on? In the months to come, there will be several movies based on popular video games, including one about Tomb Raiders and its digital babe, Lara Croft. Charlie's Angel is like the trailer for a video game movie, lacking only the video game and the movie. (laughs) Great review. So here's what's funny. I actually agree with Roger Ebert's review. It's not a great movie. So why do I own it? Because not every movie has to be great for me, and I can just zone out and simply enjoy a film for what it is. In this case, it's just fluffy action. And obviously moviegoers felt the same because it grossed more money than its budget, and it was in the top 15 of top grossing films for the year, as I said. Plus, it generated a sequel. But this is likely due to the star power from the three actresses, and Ebert pointed that out. So I saw this in theaters, and I enjoyed the film. It's a total popcorn movie, pure and simple. So interestingly enough, this series is going to be rebooted in late 2019, with the Angels being played by Kristen Stewart, Naomi Scott, and Ella Balanska. Elizabeth Banks will play Charlie and direct the film, so it'll be an interesting take on it because you're going to get her point of view. And I'm, su- I'm assuming the cheesecake nature of the TV show from the 70s, and even the 2000 series, will be turned into the new millennium take. So in any case, I'll probably check it out. All right, let's go through the cast. Cameron Diaz plays Natalie, and at this point, Diaz was starting to appear in a lot of movies, but was still best known for There's Something About Mary with Ben Stiller, and then The Mask with Jim Carrey. And she appeared in romantic comedies like My Best Friend's Wedding and A Life Less Ordinary, and she played key character, uh, like a key character role in the very underrated being John Malkovich, and she looks completely different than her normal roles. Drew Barrymore plays Dylan, and Barrymore has had a pretty cool career filled with ups and downs, and, and I love Drew Barrymore, and she of course started as a prominent child actor, most notably as the adorable Gertie in E.T., 
She then kind of went through some lean years in the late 80s and early 90s where she was trying to find where she fits in Hollywood, though she always uh, continued to appear in TV and film. She would have fun bit roles like Wayne's World 2 or the very memorable intro killing scene in the first screen movie from 1996. However, it was 1998's Wedding Singer that really brought her back to the spotlight, and this is where she found her groove and has never let up. I even love her in the Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix. Lucy Liu plays Alex, and Lou was mostly acting in small roles on TV in the early 90s, and her breakout role and likely what led her to being cast in Charlie's Angel was as Ling Wu in Ally McBeal, the TV show, and the film Shanghai Noon with Jackie Chan from 1999. Now, of course, as as Roger Ebert said, there's a great supporting cast. Of course, there's Bill Murray playing Bosley, Sam Rockwell before he really became super famous, Kelly Lynch, Tim Curry, Crispin Glover, Matt LeBlanc, LL Cool J, Tom Green, Luke Wilson, and Melissa McCarthy. The director is McGee. His real name is Joseph McGinty Nickel. And this was McGee's first movie that he directed, as at that point he was only known as a music video director up until this point. He was the go-to director for bands like Korn, along with Smash Mouth, Cypress Hill, and Sublime. Very energetic director, and which is probably why this movie is so haphazard. The writers were Ryan Rowe, Ed Solomon, John August. Rowe and August are best known for Charlie's Angels and the TV show, while Solomon wrote for the TV show Laverne and Shirley and The Gary Sandling Show. And he also wrote for movies like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, Bo- and uh, The Bogus Journey, along with Men in Black. And unfortunately, <laughs> the movie version of Super Mario Brothers. All right, let's just get into the movie. So, the movie starts with, of course, Korn playing their song Blind because of the McGee connection. And this uh, this Blind song, the mo- the song Blind, plays later during our fight during the end fight scene. I actually saw Korn open up for Ozzy uh, back in 1996, along with the Deftones. And yeah, didn't do it for me. I just wanted to see Ozzy at that point. So. You get the Columbia intro, which is cool. So instead of cutting away, the um, the plane like f- kind of flies into the the clouds, which is kind of cool. It's a good idea. The airplane scene, uh, they're showing T.J. Hooker in the movie, and uh, LL Cool J kind of makes a joke about, it. yeah, oh man, there's yet another movie made out of an old TV show. So then we cut to Livewire from Molly Crew, which is a perfect song for a good action scene because they're jumping out of the plane. There's a guy strapped with a bomb, and the bomb explodes in midair, and Lucy Liu is quote-unquote skydiving, because it does look even fake there. (laughs) Cameron Diaz is driving a motorboat in a very skimpy bikini, and Drew Barrymore is in disguise like LL Cool J. Sorry if you... There's going to be spoilers here, folks. Does it really matter? It's The plot is secondary here. This is very Mission Impossible. Um, the plane scene looks like one long shot, though it's actually three, and the boat scene was actually in Los Angeles Harbor, but it looks so fake. There's a fun a fun scene where they explaining the, the woman, them growing up, the girls growing up. So Cameron Diaz, who's Natalie, she's a student driver with uh, headgear and braces on. She's doing car tricks while whams wake me up before you go-go plays. One thing about this movie, there's tons of great... Uh, past songs, and I think that has everything to do with Drew Barrymore, because she loves throwing in 80s music. Lucy Liu in the flashback sing as Alex. She's riding horses. You know, the, there's uh, like kind of the equestrian ju- jumping while the song Money is playing by the Flying Lizards. Drew Barrymore, who is Dylan, she always plays a, a rocker chick, and she's playing I Love Rock and Roll, and it's Drew Barrymore in the Tom Green era. So it's always fun retro when you have moments of love affairs in real life that translate to film. 
They both live on a boat, and Angel in the Morning is playing from Juice Newton. And the Chad is is what Tom Green always talks about, which I have no idea what he's talking about. Well, the Chad is him. His name's Chad, but, you know, you get that far away Tom Green stare? Yeah, if you grew up in the late 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Is it the Chad? It might be the Chad. Chad. It's the Chad. Drew is kind of like that barroom f- fighter. Cameron is elegant, fast with moves. She's good with wires, bad with kicks. And Lucy Wu is a mixture of the two. So then we get Cameron Diaz in like kind of a group uh, dance scene, very reminiscent to Saturday Night Fever, also very similar to what she was doing in The Mask. The band Tavares is playing, who were, of course, on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. But she's dreaming, and you get the obligatory Cameron, you know, it's kind of silly dancing in her Spider-Man underoos, <laughs> and I think this pleased most males, especially me at the time. And she kind of plays a ditzy character, but, you know, after she wakes up from her ballroom dance dream and dances around her bedroom, she was asked to dance kind of badly, you know, get progressively worse with each take, and so she found this somewhat difficult because she actually does have... Uh, ballroom dancing experience is why she dances all the time so imagine trying to play bad dance bad when you're not bad it's kind of like yeah this is really going to go over most of the head of my, heads of my audience but jack benny who was the famous comedian and radio host and the eventual you know television person way back when in the, the 30s 40s and 50s he was actually a very accomplished violin player but he was so good, he could actually play bad and make it sound bad, even though it's very difficult to play bad when you're not bad. <laughs> so there you go. So that's the equivalent of that. I know. It was worth it, right, folks? So Lucy Liu is dating Matt LeBlanc in the film, and, and they're rehearsing a movie script, and, and they have cell phones, but they're very bulky and non-flip phones. Think Zach Morris and uh, Saved by the Bell. They, uh, Lucy Wu and Matt LeBlanc live in a, like a, a giant trailer, which was an homage to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There's a fun scene where they're eating muffins, the girls are eating muffins, and they decide to throw it at one another, and one is very, uh, it's like a rock and sticks to the wall. It's kind of funny to see young Sam Rockwell before he became the award show darling, which he is now. You get to see Kelly Lynch as a brunette, and it's always fun to see Tim Curry. He's getting a massage as an Asian massage parlor, so of course, the Vapors Turning Japanese is playing. It's a great 80s song, but I don't think it really holds up well <laughs> today's very PC culture. Anyway, more 80s nostalgia. You get Crispin Glover playing the creepy, which is kind of redundant with Crispin Glover. He plays the thin man. No, uh, no relation to the famous detective from the 30s and 40s. His eyes are always super intense throughout this film, which, you know, I think he's definitely a highlight of this film, plus his weird hair fetish after the fight scene, just it's typical Crispin Glover. But he actually came up with many of the characters' eccentric traits, such as ripping off the women's hair, sniffing it, and then screaming. <laughs> the Thin Man was originally a speaking role, but Crispin Glover didn't like the lines, so he asked for them to be removed, therefore he became a creepy mute. Director McGee and producer Drew Barrymore agreed to make it a non-speaking role to give the character a more mysterious and definitely creepy feel. In the party scene, Playboy Playmate Karen McDougal is, is on Tim Curry's arm. Now, you might know this name, and you probably definitely know her face now, because McDougal is now best known for allegedly having an affair with Donald Trump back in 2006. 
you kind of get the awkward love affair with Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson where, you know, she, she acts awkward and she has the line, they don't call me balls out, Natalie, for nothing, and that's today's typical comedy. Yes. This is a movie that seems really better in the background than any, than like really paying attention to it. It, it was, you know, honestly, this movie was cheap when I bought it. So I, it's mine was fun. It's entertaining. It can't be taken seriously. It would probably be, you know, better if it wasn't trying to pass, you know, kind of pass itself as high tech action. But, you know, Crispin Glover is shooting at the girls. And of course, it's time to rip off the Matrix with the Matrix with super slow mo. And unfortunately, as groundbreaking as the Matrix was, it has spawned so many copycats, and it has not stopped. You watch any superhero movie now. I mean, Wonder Woman was... I, I enjoyed Wonder Woman, but my God, the amount of slow motion, like, it just... It's ridiculous. It is so bad in the CGI slow motion. Forget it, you know? <laughs> it's just... Uh, smack my bitch up from Prodigy is playing, and sadly, the lead singer has just passed away a few months ago. There's a racetrack scene which centers around Drew Barrymore's uh, cleavage, and uh, Andrew Wilson, who is the oldest brother of Owen and Luke, is the driver for Tim Curry, and eventually Cameron Diaz gets to show off her race car skills. Angel's Eye by Aerosmith Plays, which was exclusive for the movie, and this would have been the by far the best song on Just Push Play, which is the worst Aerosmith album. This song plays twice in the movie.
much music you never get a chance to actually enjoy anything and this is pretty much the trend of all action movies today it's the it's the add movie trend that and pretty much every five minutes they're in a new costume this might be fun for the actors but it's just dizzying for the movie going public but then again the the plot for this movie is is almost secondary you can half pay attention and miss nothing there's an office scene where you get to see a very early role from melissa mccarthy she gets a funny line while barracuda from heart plays Originally, McGee wanted Hot for Teacher from Van Halen, but went with Hart instead. So you get a scene where there it's like kind of a high-tech office alarm scene, which is straight out of Mission Impossible. Slow motion galore. This is totally a Mission Impossible knockoff. The song True from Spandau Ballet plays during the Rockwell and Barrymore scene at his house. And again, I think 80s music plays a lot for Drew Barrymore, and that makes sense. There's a funny scene on the set of uh, Soul Train where Cameron Diaz and Luke Wilson, uh, Baby Got Back, is playing and Diaz dances like a robot in The Running Man. And I love Cameron Diaz's smile. It's just infectious. You can't help but enjoy when she's on screen. Unfortunately, Bill Murray is essentially wasted in this movie. However, when you hear about Murray's and happiness on the set, I guess it totally makes sense. I think most people remember this film for the drama which went on. Supposedly, Murray does not have patience for people he deems to be idiots, and I guess Lucy Wu was on Murray's shit list. According to People Magazine at the time, Murray stopped the scene in progress, pointed at Barrymore, Diaz, and Wu, and in order says, I get why you're here, and you've got talent, but why the hell are you here? You can't act. Lucy Wu was super pissed and actually physically attacked Murray and wildly threw punches at him. The two were separated when they yelled back and forth at each other. Columbia Pictures downplayed the incident to promote the film. However, this is exactly the reason why Bernie Mac was cast as Bosley in the sequel. And Murray would never act with Lou again. It also may be the reason you don't see much of Lou in a high-profile movie anymore. McGee claimed later that Murray headbutted him after a disagreement on set. Murray said that was bullshit and that he hoped McGee was pierced with a lance, not just headbutted. <laughs> it's kind of funny how you don't really see Lucy with McGee much any longer, but you still see Bill Murray. Cachet in Hollywood. Marvin Gaye's Gotta Give It Up Part 1 is playing on the surprise twist, which I will not give away because I'm sure you're all going to run out and see this if you already haven't. If not, you can skip this part. Sam Rockwell is really the bad guy. Okay, spoiler over. Funny scene with Drew Barrymore where she falls from a building naked and lands into a yard where two boys are playing video games talking about seeing girls naked. <laughs> Reminds me of Animal House and the Thank You God scene. And uh, Drew Barrymore borrows a Stone Cold Austin, <laughs> Steve Austin t-shirt. But what's cool about this scene is that the house that the kids were in was the E.T. house, which, of course, a five-year-old Drew played Gertie in, and a bowl of Reese's Pieces, E.T.'s favorite candy, and a movie poster were visible in the house as an homage. 
So Bill Murray is imprisoned, and no need to get in why he's imprisoned, but he why does he have a baseball mitt? And you know, while he's in a baseball well, he's in prison. My only guess is he's a huge Cub fan, and he wanted to throw it in. The Bosley rescue fight scenes are okay, but today they're considered almost pedestrian. The Cameron Diaz-Kelly Lynch battle is much better than the Crispin Glover-Lucy Liu fight, and Drew Barrymore's escape is entertaining. You can almost picture the wires of her boosting in the air, but it's fun nonetheless. It's funny to see her do a moonwalk to Billie Jean, and her chair scene took 20 takes. Rod Stewart plays a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Angels as the, or Angel as the ladies land in the water near Charlie's house. Not a great version. Finally, we get to the end credits, and it's Blink-182 playing all the small things. Ugh, what a bad era. The era of outtakes are also playing through the credits. One thing they did get is the voice of Charlie to return from the original TV show, of course. That is John Forsythe. Also, during the closing credits, you get Independent Woman Part 1 from Destiny's Child. It's kind of generic. And then Tangerine Speedo by Caviar. It's just terrible. There were deleted scenes. Of course there were. There's a scene where Corwin's party, where Corwin challenged Bosley to a game. The Corwin, of course, is Tim Curry. Uh, to a game of Marco Polo in his pool. When Corwin loses, he challenges Bosley to some sumo wrestling, which would actually have been a good scene in this movie. Bill Murray actually owns a minor league baseball team, and during the seventh inning stretch, they do sumo wrestling suit matches where you get in these giant suits, and then you kind of just fall on each other. <laughs> There was another deleted scene where in Red Star headquarters where Dylan and Natalie have their break-in interrupted when Corwin walks by. And then they run into the men's room. Their, their red bathroom is supposed to be like The Shining, so it's kind of a funny scene. There's an extended version of Dylan and Eric Knox, that's Sam Rockwell, fooling around in his kitchen during the shake and bake sequence. In this version, we actually see Dylan leaving the house, and it is assumed she spends a night there in the final cut. It's an interesting outtake, but it kind of would have screwed up the plot line. So a few fun facts about this movie. Chun Yen, who is like a martial arts guru, he started with Jackie Chan in the 70s. He also worked on The Matrix, so there you go. He worked out for four months, eight hours, and five days a week to train the girls. And he did all the stunts in the first fight scene with Crispin Glover to make sure it got perfect. They did this with wires. You can only film in bits, so it was actually very tough to film this movie to get what they want. The original speaker box, which is what you hear Charlie on, was from the original show. When there's the castle explosion, actually had three stunt people jumping, that wasn't CGI. So if you go back and watch that. So many people were considered for the role of Alex, including Aaliyah, but she was deemed too young. Angelina Jolie was originally offered the role, but turned it down after admitting she was not a fan of the original series. It was then offered to Jada Pinkett Smith, who declined it to film Bamboozled. Fandy Newton was finally cast, but she had to leave due to a freak weather, <laughs> due to freak weather, which caused Mission Impossible 2 to overrun its shooting schedule. Then Selma Hayek, Liv Tyler, and Lauren Hill were all considered for Alex Monday. Finally, they got Lucy Liu, much to the dismay of Bill Murray. There were actually many other people considered, and just wait till you hear this list. Asia Argento, Ashley Judge, Victoria Beckham, Halle Berry, Hella Bonham Carter. Kristen Davis, Jodie Foster, Jerry Horner, Jer Jennifer Jason Lee, Nia Long, Gwyneth Paltrow, Tiffany Amber Thiessen, Uma Thurman, Kate Winslet, Reese Witherspoon, Robin Wright, Renee Zellweger, Penelope Cruz, and Catherine Zeta-Jones were all considered for the role of Alex Monday, and they ended up with Lucy Wu. <laughs> Other people that were considered for all three parts were Mila Jovovich, 
Alyssa Milano, and Julia Roberts. Angie Harmon was considered for a lead role, but could not participate to her commitments in Law & Order. Jenny McCarthy was auditioned for the role of Natalie. However, as we said, her cousin Melissa McCarthy has a cameo as a character named Doris. Drew Barrymore was a huge Harry Potter fan, even going as far to read bits of the books to the cast and crew during production. At the beginning of the film, during the clips of previous jobs, she can be seen wearing a Harry Potter disguise, complete with robes, black hair, and round black glasses. Jacqueline Smith, Kate Jackson, and Farrah Fawcett were invited to make cameo appearances, but declined. Reportedly, Fawcett said she'd only do it if she were allowed to be the voice of Charlie, and Jackson insisted on playing Vivian Wood. Ultimately, John Forsythe and Smith appeared in the sequel, Charlie's Angel Full Throttle, in 2003, and Smith's role is uncredited. Although the quote-unquote bad guys use guns in the film, the Angels do not. Drew Barrymore, who was also one of the producers, insisted that the Angels be able to do their fighting without firearms. The script was rewritten at least 30 times until one was deemed acceptable by the producers and McGee. Cameron Diaz was paid $12 million to Drew Barrymore's $9 million, and Lucy Wu received $1 million. Drew Barrymore's then-boyfriend, Tom Green, was diagnosed with testicular cancer during the filming, and she would spend most of the evenings after shooting with the hos- at the hospital with him. All right, folks. <laughs> there you have it. Is this a good movie? Uh, good and bad, it's all subjective. Is it entertaining? I Yeah, it's entertaining. I own it. Do I put it on all the time? No. Can I put it on in the background? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's fine. Like, I, I don't mind movies like this. Again, it's funny how you're going to go through all these these episodes, you know, listing on, your, you know, however you listen to this podcast. And you're saying, why? Oh, great. Look, this is a this is a classic. And this is a classic. And Charlie's Angels? What the hell? Yeah, well, that's the podcast, folks. So enjoy it for what it is. I had never said this was going to be the movies, you know, the best movies in the world. It's just, you know, out of my DVD collection. So enjoy it, folks. And until next week, this is Brian signing off. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C dot com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. 
If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world, and it's my number one podcast, signed by Science. Now, and then Science also said... Science! Science also said, my second favorite podcast is, it doesn't matter, the rest suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!